Method to the Madness is next. You're listening to Method to the Madness, a bi-weekly public affairs show on KALX celebrating Bay Area innovators. Welcome to the program, Erin and Monica Rocchino. I wanted to talk to you about some of the challenges of the meat industry. You have the local butcher shop in the Gourmet Ghetto here in Berkeley. First of all, why did you call it the local butcher? It's a double entendre, really. I mean, we wanted to be part of the community and and build community around our shop. So we wanted to literally be the local butcher. And then we also source all of our meat from within 150 miles of Berkeley. So that's how we define the term local. All of our products come from within that boundary, so everything we sell is also local. It's like an, it's an easy name. Kind of harkens back like my parents having a local butcher. Uh-huh. Yeah. We so, also figured if we called it Rokinos, nobody would be able to pronounce it and yes. nor, or remember it. Well, so you both have very deep roots in the food industry. You were a chef at Chez Panisse, Aaron? I did. I cooked downstairs for six years. Yeah, working side by side with all of those people. It's just it was an amazing experience. Yeah. And you, you weren't a chef, but can yeah. you talk a little bit about what you used to do? And- sure. Well, I started in a production mode, building kitchens on site for special events, whether it was an existing kitchen or in the middle of a football field or a forest, you know, and making five-star restaurant quality food in the middle of nowhere. And then later on, after I had my own business planning events in Italy for Americans, I went back to Paul LaDuke in sales and wrote menus and sold events. And you both worked at Oliveto, and that's where, where you met. met. Mm-hmm. Did you meet over um, carcass of beef? Or no. <laughs> no. How did that happen? We met in the stairwell. Yeah. <laughs> it was so romantic. I know that stairwell. <laughs> <laughs> so what were you doing at Oliveto? Were you a chef there as well? I was cooking there, and I had been at Oliveto for six months for an internship. And then I left after finishing my internship to go back and finish up school after I was done. I was offered a job back at Oliveto. I was working with Paul Canales at the time, um, and Paul Bertoli was also chefing there. It was such a great experience for me coming from Allentown, Pennsylvania, being able to get connected with the local farmers, and whether it was produce or meat, being able to meet those people coming in through the back door with the things that we were then going to put on the menu. So that was your first exposure to that kind of local yeah, farmer coming in with, with their meat? and So things started to click for me. I started we, there right after he left. Mm-hmm. I started working there as a barista and an AM waitress server. That's when I started my company to do events in Italy, and so I needed some money to pay the rent. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to increase my Italian vocabulary, especially around food and food knowledge. So I figured that was a really great place to start. And then kind of worked my way through the front of the house, all the different positions. And um, really the position I enjoyed the most was the food runner position because I got to stand up in the kitchen for the majority of my shift and see what was going on and how everything was put together. And anyway, I had been there, I don't know, maybe six months or something. And then this new guy comes and he really seemed to know what he was doing and knew who everyone was. And I was like, who is this guy? What's his deal? (laughs) You had similar philosophies about sustainability of food and, or did you learn together 
about that? I mean, I know for me, Italian food was really important, still is, and it seemed like we had that connection just from what she likes to eat and the background of her doing events in Italy. All that stuff was really interesting to me. But also she knew her way around here, California, and I didn't know, and we got a chance to just kind of go and see and do things together. It was all new to me. It was all those things that just kind of kept us interested. What was the point where you decided... I want to start my own butcher shop. That's I was quite way a later leaf. on down the that line. That was much later, yeah. yeah. So Aaron had been at Shea for six years, and I was with Paula Duke, and we had totally opposite schedules. It got to the point where we were like, we want to stay in the food industry. We need to see more of each other. What should we do? And we ruled out a restaurant or owning a cafe because that would just bring about the same schedule. And there's also such a plethora where we're – so overwhelmed in a good way with wonderful cafes and restaurants in this area, there really isn't a need for yet another. And so we started thinking about what we really needed in our lives and what was missing. And we realized that what was missing was the only way that we could find meat that we could really trust and that was delicious uh, was for Aaron to bring it home from the restaurant. Because you go to the, we go to the supermarket and there's stickers and stamps and labels all over everything and nobody really knows what any of it means or where any of it's coming from or how it's been handled and and we figured if we were having that problem and we had like the best access of anybody we knew then everybody was having that problem and so because they do whole animal butchery at Chez Panisse and and likewise at Oliveto Aaron had had 10 years or so to culminate relationships with all the ranchers and farmers that supplied both of those restaurants so we called them all up and asked them if they would be interested in selling their product to us to sell retail. At the time, they were strictly wholesale to restaurants. And they all said yes. They were all on board because essentially we were being their salespeople for them. We were committing to buying their product, and then it was up to us to sell it. So, well, How did the restaurants feel about you using their meat? It wasn't that I was taking away any of the meat that they would originally get. Plus, you know, we weren't a restaurant. And it's just another way for them to be able to... Market themselves. Exactly. And support the farmer. And support the yeah. farmer. And okay. I think that was a big thing. Like, it's huge to be able to feel that connection and then knowing that we're helping to support the community and the people who are actually raising these animals instead of getting meat from a styrofoam tray, not really knowing where it originated. It's that connection that really mm-hmm. makes you feel better about what you're buying. You're able to stand behind it. You believe in it. And then it all ends up tasting better. And we get a lot of restaurant folk buying from us well, that's what for their wondering. homes. Like Alice Waters comes in regularly, you know, like, and cooks and chefs from all over the Bay Area will come because not everybody can just take or buy from their own restaurants mm-hmm. stockpile, you know, <laughs> but they want that quality and they want that flavor. And so we're really the, the only place that they can come to get that. It's yeah. also good for the restaurants as like a last minute, I'm out of this or I'm, do you have any more of whatever that you can supply us? Well, speaking and of that, so, how do you handle that? Because you buy entire right. animals. When you run out, you run out, right? And they're out of luck if, you're, if you've run out, correct? Exactly. Typically for something like a wholesale thing, we, for Shea, for example, we've worked out this holistic, holistic system. way of being able to use up the whole animal. So for dinner, one night, it, there might be ribeyes or New Yorks on the menu, but then another part of the menu, a different time of the week, might be braised chuck or short ribs or brisket being able to eat different parts of the animal instead of always just wanting filet or always just wanting New York's or ribeyes. We're able to 
work out this kind of system so that it kind of evens out enough. And so it also, yeah, it does take away a little bit from the shop. But, but what do you do about that? Are you educating your customers? Like, right. Well, what, can you, what else can well, you do with these other parts of the It's animal? kind of a two-part thing. First of all, we, we do very little wholesale because we're opened to get restaurant-quality meat into home cooks' kitchens, not into restaurant kitchens. I mean, Chez Panisse is really our main account that we just do the beef for, but beyond that, we're pretty much 99% retail. To answer your question about what do we do when we run out of cuts, because there are a finite number of cuts per animal, each one of our butchers is a trained chef, trained cook. And so when we do run out of something, we and we can't go in the back and just open up another box of whatever it is, the butchers start asking a lot of questions like, how are you going to cook it? How many people are you looking to feed? Fancy, casual, you know, and they really try and get an understanding of what your goal was. And then they're going to steer the customer towards an alternative cut that's going to work equally well for what the customer was trying to do. And also help them understand how to cook it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. We don't price each individual cut a different price. We've done that to try to encourage people eating cuts that maybe they're not so familiar with and not being discouraged by price. Or to think it's lesser. Right. Sometimes somebody comes in asking for something specific and they're asking for that cut because a recipe calls for it or because that that's what they've always used in the past. But there are so many different cuts on each animal that you, you can get a similar type of consistency or the flavor or the method of cooking. You can find those things in other cuts that aren't specific to that one individual mm-hmm. cut. One of the things I read, uh, I think it was you, Monica, You it was an interview with you where you said, your meat was more kosher than kosher. <laughs> I was speaking to the intent of the kosher and kashrut rules and laws, and uh, it's my personal belief that the intent was to keep the integrity of the animal's life held at the highest level possible, to have it eat what it's supposed to be eating, have access to pasture, be out on pasture, and to be humanely slaughtered. And the majority of kosher slaughterhouses in this country, if not all, are dealing with feedlot animals, feedlot beef for sure, commercial industrial lamb, and just because the method of their slaughter is the kosher method slice of the knife across the neck and it's under the surveillance of a rabbi with a prayer, therefore it's kosher. But the life cycle of that animal was anything but kosher. And so what I was trying to say was that all of our meat, all of the animals were raised with integrity and humanely raised and humanely slaughtered, but they weren't kosher slaughtered. But in my estimation, the intent, the uh, attention to their welfare makes them more kosher than kosher meat right now. A very big challenge recently, mm-hmm. as you know, mm-hmm. is the Rancho, the Rancho Feeding Corporation, the slaughterhouse that they recalled 8.7 million pounds of beef on February 8th. That's a big challenge, I'm sure, to your local farmers because some of the local farmers use that. It's the only Northern California slaughterhouse, at least within 150 miles, right? It's the closest. Well, it's the closest around sure. And there aren't yeah. even that many in the state of California, something no. like 23. Yeah. How did that challenge affect you guys? It's it's a big deal. A lot of the smaller farmers, it's their outlet to get their meat 
to individuals, you know, whether it's something for a, a CSA box that they put together that people come to pick up or for meat that is sold at farmer's markets. A lot of these farmers don't have the quantity of animals to take in at one time that some of these other slaughterhouses are requiring the minimum of head of beef to go through in order for that to happen. So then it makes it even more challenging because then one farmer has to get together with another farmer and another farmer. Rancho was really great in that way is that they would take just a few head at a time. Maybe you can explain the whole slaughterhouse thing and how that affects local farmers because they have to go through it, right, for ag department processing. Farmers can't sell meat that has been slaughtered on their own property, period. The only way that they can get around it is if they sell the animal live to a customer and then the customer pays for an abattoir to come to their property and slaughter the meat and butcher it. So that's how some of the really small CSA meat boxes do it. The customer's actually purchasing a live animal. The other way is the farmer can have meat for themselves and their family slaughtered on their own ranch. Any other meat that's being sold has to be slaughtered in a USDA certified slaughterhouse. In order for any rancher to sell either wholesale to a restaurant or to a supermarket or even directly to consumers in CSA meat boxes or at the farmer's market, the meat has to be slaughtered in a USDA certified slaughterhouse. And what that means is that there's a USDA inspector on site at the slaughterhouse whenever slaughtering is happening. They have an office, they have a parking spot, and they're there. Inspectors rotate, I don't know if it's quarterly or or yearly, I'm not sure, sure. but in order, there's always someone there. So the information that's been put out thus far has been extremely vague, and we really don't know the exact details. What we do know is that apparently, well, Rancho divides their slaughtering days Some days they do what's called custom meat, which is all of these local small ranchers bring in 2 to 12 head of cattle a day, and they kind of puzzle piece them together and and make sure that the whole day is filled with small ranchers' cattle. Then other days they do more commercial cattle, which is mostly because of their proximity in Petaluma to the dairy industry. It's mostly dairy cows that have reached the end of their productivity in, in milk production that are being slaughtered that then go and are sold as commercial beef, mm-hmm. which is the type of beef that would be found in Hot Pockets, for example. Right. And a so, lot of supermarkets. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So there's absolutely never any crossover between custom meat and commercial meat, period. And from day to day, at the end of the day, and even throughout the day, there's cleanings that happens. There's no cross-contamination. There's, there's between, no opportunity. Between industrial right. beef and right. or meat. And Live or okay. slaughtered. Mm-hmm. So even as the animals are waiting and holding to go into the slaughterhouse, there's no crossover. There's no way for the commercial beef to come in contact with the custom beef at any point. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Method to the Madness, a bi-weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley. Today I'm interviewing Monica and Aaron Rokino, owners of The Local Butcher in North Berkeley. They're discussing the challenges of bringing local, sustainable meat products from farm to table. But what we understand is that two of the dairy cattle were slaughtered without being inspected before they were slaughtered. Part of the inspection routine is to inspect the live animal before it's slaughtered. Either it wasn't done, it wasn't documented correctly, we're not really sure. And as a result, the first 
recall happened, which recalled the meat from, I believe it was January 1st through said all of January 13th. That was the yeah. first one, the first recall. And then I guess upon further inspections of the USDA inspector's work, they found that maybe there had been more animals that were not inspected before slaughter, I'm assuming. And so as a result, the USDA punished the USDA inspector by ultimately punishing Rancho and all of Rancho's customers by recalling every bit of meat, every bit of beef that was processed there between January 1st and December 31st, 2013. It's amazing. It's amazing. And the thing is, it's a huge number. It catches everybody's eye. Not one case of illness had been reported. And 99% of that beef has already been consumed. The only thing we had in our shop that was from that beef was our hot dogs that BN Ranch makes for us with their 2013 slaughtered animal. But other than that, everything else was consumed, and it was all delicious. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think Bill and Nicolette have kind of taken this on themselves, which is awesome. And Yeah, she's writing they're... a book, Defending Beef. There's right. an article so... in the New York Times, and yeah, I saw that. that. Uh-huh. But they, so I, I feel like they're in a unique situation amongst right. our local farmers because they only slaughter beef in the summer and early fall, and they slaughter a lot, and they freeze it with the intent of selling the rest of it throughout the rest of the year. So they had a good amount of beef that was frozen waiting to be sold that they had to then, that was part of the recall. Most of the local farmers don't have the resources or the, the stockpile of that amount. Right Most there. of the local farmers will slaughter regularly throughout the year. And if they don't, if they only are slaughtering through the summer and fall, which is prime beef season, and they're freezing, it's not anywhere near the quantities of frozen meat as BN Ranch. In her book, which she says, it's financially devastating, it's wasteful, but the third thing was so poignant because they know their cows individually. Mm-hmm. Apparently a lot mm-hmm. of these local farmers do. Right. Mm-hmm. She felt like it was sacrilegious to that animal because they knew them by name, they walked them to their death, they they were there when they're born, and to just throw away their meat, their yeah, lives. That, is, that's what I was going to say, too, is, is that the people that we get our meat from are the farmers, the ones who raise these animals. They're the ones who pick them out, load them onto the trailer, and are taken to the slaughterhouse. So when they show up, they're in perfect health and perfect condition. Like They're picked out specifically because they have a home. And the ranch or the farm name is connected to this meat and the quality. So the opposite end of that is to load up a trailer of animals that are done with their production and we need to move them somewhere. There's a big difference. How many kinds of animals do you guys have in your shop? Beef, pork, lamb, goat, chicken, duck, turkey, squab, pigeon, rabbit, Quail. <laughs> and you also sell dog food. Duck. And can you talk yeah. about also you sell soap? And where do you get that? And We make it. We make it. From what? So <laughs> from the tallow. So it's part of what we also is important to us is just to utilize the whole animal. So it's not fair to take uh, these lives and, and to just throw trim and fat and bones to waste. A way to, to get as much out of it is to use up everything. So making soups and stocks and stews and dog food and soap and treats and 
cookies and all kinds of charcuterie and a sandwich, those kinds of things, they're all outlets for us to use up the whole animal. So the soap is made out of the tallow. Do you guys actually make it? Yeah, we make it. We make it at the shop. That's so cool. Yeah, so you can render it. There's just so many different things that you can do with it, well, with all parts of it, and it's wasteful to throw anything away. Well, it's also economically wasteful because we pay one price per pound to the farmer. We are paying the same price for bones and fat that we pay for tenderloin. So to us, the entire animal has equal value. Every piece that goes in the trash or in the compost is money lost. So whatever we can do to create something out of the quote-unquote waste helps us to regain our Which costs. Which is actually kind of an indigenous, it's an old idea. Sure. Totally. Every part Absolutely. Of the Absolutely. We did Absolutely. not. The sacred nature. Yeah. There's nothing about what yeah. we do that we, we up. made up. <laughs> it's all been done before. We're just right. going back to it. I'm sure you also get a lot of um, flack about Meat in general. A lot of people don't eat meat here. They feel that it's an energy consumer. And, well, well there's a lot of political, social, and cultural yeah. challenges. Here. I mean, there, a you... lot of it is valid for sure. And because we own a butcher shop, we're not pushing on anybody to eat meat every day of the week and every meal. We don't eat meat every day of the <laughs> week. And so it's if you're getting good quality meat, you don't have to eat as much of it. And it's good for you. We're big proponents of eating higher quality meat and less of it. When you do have meat, you should be getting the best quality meat you can possibly get. Which and know is, where it comes which from. Which is going to cost yeah. more than not knowing where it comes from. You know, we're big proponents of spending a little more, getting a little less, but eating less of less of what you're getting. Grass-based, pasture-raised, 100% pasture-raised meats you know, they help the ecosystem. We're not talking about giant feedlots full of beef or animals that are shoulder to shoulder. We're talking about farms where the animals are roaming and they're part of the ecosystem and they help the grasses grow and by mowing them, you know, they're the natural <laughs> lawnmowers and, and their excrement helps the, the animals and the insects and everything to break down and, and to biodegrade into nutrients for the next round of grasses to grow. and One of our farmers grows produce and beans and, and all kinds of things on, on the land that he has. Part of his rotation is when he goes to harvest the crops, he then brings in the pigs to till the land for him. And so it's like, it's just this natural cycle. You know, he lets them do their thing there. They're super happy. They get to eat all of like the roots and things and bugs that were all happy and alive when the crop was growing and then they till it and then it's ready for the next round of whatever he wants to plant in that area. You talk to beef farmers too, they will kind of consider themselves grass farmers more than anything else because that's what provides the food to the cows. But if they don't manage the land properly, they're not going to have feed. They're not going to have the grass for the animals. So it's being able to know why, where, when, and how to take care of this land. And then the animals come in, they're, they're just part they just, of it. They're yeah, part of it, right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's mm-hmm. really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some animals need additional feed, whether it's chickens or pigs, but we have worked with our farmers in the past and we're now at a, a point that any additional feed is non-GMO. Most or they of it's grow grown it. on the property itself. Right, yeah. and then they're able to turn that into their own feed. Yeah, it's important to us too that if there's additional feed that it's it's clean just because they're out on pasture, if you're still feeding them crappy feed, then what's the point? Yeah, you're eating that. 
you're very near two large supermarkets. So the gourmet ghetto itself, with with the cheese board and and the produce center, and it's a place where people go to do their shopping. And the farmers markets there on Thursday. We certainly saw the supermarkets being an added bonus and an integrative um, part of our business model because we didn't want to be a supermarket. We didn't want to offer everything. But we knew that for convenience, somebody who's going to get all of their dry goods and staples across the street who wants to come and then get their meat with us is far more likely to do it in one stop than having to get back in their car or even to walk, you know, three blocks away. It's a pretty unique situation that we're in. Yeah. It's great to have them as neighbors. You have this one location. Do you have plans for growth? We've had people come up to us and ask us, so... Can you open a store in Fill wherever? In the blank. <laughs> or, yeah, exactly. And then, and since we're now just a little over two and a half years old, it still feels too new to really even think about that. We want to definitely build a solid foundation before we do any kind of other location. Or even if we you are, do another location. Right, right exactly. So <laughs> we, we've been talking about doing some sort of CSA meat box kind of thing. We're just kind of getting things together on that. We're looking to maybe um, expand in sense of a production kitchen somewhere off-site just because our kitchen space is so small and for the amount of value-added products that we are making and the number of animals that we are going through a week, space is becoming our... How many animals do you go through in a week? Depends on the week, but there's almost a holiday every month. (laughs) Each holiday has a very specific type of meat or Mm -hmm. cut. So you have to be ready for that, right? Right, Mm -hmm. exactly. So on a regular kind of week, we'll do two to three beef each week, and then we can do anywhere from like six to eight pigs, six lamb, then all of the different things. 120 chickens. Yeah, it it varies uh, for sure. So you've had to learn how do you balance that with the seasonality of some of these meats? Monica and I have a lot of conversations with our farmers how weather can affect the animals and from even from week to week. So there's a lot of adjusting and a lot of just kind of making things happen. You can't on just the fly. ask for a beef last minute. Mm-hmm. Right. It takes over, you know, well over a year to even yeah. grow a beef, so you can't yeah. all of a sudden be like, "Oh, actually next week I need another, you know, I need a third or a fourth. It's our job to help inform the customer. That's kind of like our day-to-day job is to be available and to give any of this information to the customers that walk into the shop or that want to take a couple extra minutes to hear about the drought, how it's affecting our beef right now or whatever. We always say every every transaction, transaction. Is, a, is an opportunity for education. The majority of customers are coming to us because they want that individualized attention and they're giving us an opportunity to, to pass along a message and to talk about our philosophies and to express our passion for what we do and for the farmers and for the for the land. And we get to read how much they want to know. And or what that, they might know Or already. what they mm-hmm. might And we right. learn from them as well. You know, we certainly are in a highly, highly educated demographic zone here. So Sometimes yes. somebody will ask us something and we may not know the answer, but it's just a phone call away. And that's also what's really cool about what we do is that I can call the farmer and be like, hey, what do you know about this? Or what happens when this happens? Or like, what do you think about this? And I can find out immediately, not having to worry about going through a distributor who will then maybe get in touch with somebody else who eventually will get to the farmer. You know, we feel like 
we want to be educated enough so that we can have our customers trust us. Yeah. And that's important to us. That's great. I'm from Pennsylvania, from Allentown, and I grew up with food being the complete opposite as to what I think food is now. How, how and that was, well, a lot of fast food, it was all out of convenience. But I would spend the summers with my grandfather and uh, my grandmother that have a fully functional farm. And I would do farm work and we would take care of the animals and feed them and bale hay and like everything that needs to happen on the farm. And they would always push these ideas on me of like, trying to eat local and get what you can from your land and just like really old school ways. I got to learn a lot, but it was totally foreign to me. And then I came out here and I started to get to work with the farmers and being able to see them walk in the back door with a product and then be able to use that on the menu. That's where it clicked for me. And so then all of a sudden, they were the only normal people in my family, and everybody else was really weird. <laughs> well, you grew up in Northern California, Monica. I did. I grew up in Marin County. So you probably were born with all this knowledge. <laughs> I don't. We certainly didn't eat at home with a local bend or an organic bend or anything like that. My parents were East Coast transplants, and it didn't occur to me the connection between food and land, really, until uh, I got an opportunity to live in Italy for a year during college. That being said, though, the deep connection to the land that I was surrounded with certainly had a huge impact on me. It wasn't until, you know, I was in Italy that I really understood that a tomato shouldn't be like that orangey color and, (laughs) you know, and and that that there were seasons to produce and and seasonality to cooking and and how it all tied together with the environment. Erin and Monica, I'm afraid that's all the time we have today, but I want to thank you for being on the program. Thank you. Thank you. Great. It's my pleasure. You've been listening to Method to the Madness. I'm Lisa Kiefer. Tune in again in two weeks at the same time. Have a great weekend.